Well, at about 13,000 feet in the Andes Mountain is a statue called Christ the Redeemer of the Andes. The statue was placed there in 1904 to commemorate the peaceful resolution to a border dispute that happened between Chile and Argentina. But shortly after that statue was placed there to uh, show that war had been averted, a new dispute erupted over the statue itself. Because the people of Chile were upset that the statue had its back turned to them. And so the day was saved by a newspaper editor who wrote an editorial about it. And it not only satisfied the people, but also made them laugh when he said the people of Argentina needed to be watched over more closely by Christ than those of Chile. (laughs) Now, it's funny how we as people are prone to conflict. And we will fight over just about everything, won't we? And as people who fight, uh, that includes Christians. The church is made up of people, which is why as we turn in our Bible today to James chapter 4, we're going to see how James addresses the issue of conflict. Not just the issues that cause conflict, but he also gives us the cure for it. So I invite you to look with me at James chapter 4 as we begin reading about the causes in verses 1 through 3. He says, what is the source of quarrels and conflict among you? Is not, the source of, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, and so you commit murder. You are envious and you cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now, the Greek word that he uses for quarrels here means widespread conflict. It it spoke of something like the theater of war in the Pacific during World War II. And then when he uses the other word for conflict, it speaks more of small-scale skirmishes, uh, little local fights or personal battles. And the body of Christ has a history of both. We have both widespread wars that are broken out, and we also have petty skirmishes. Uh, Last week, we saw in chapter 3 that as Christians, when we fight, we're to choose our battles. We're not just to fight over our personal preferences. Rather, it is to be things that threaten the foundations of our faith. As James speaks here, he's talking not just about personal preferences, but he uses the word pleasures. Now, the Greek word for pleasures here is hedone, and this is where we get our English word hedonism. And hedonism is the playboy type of philosophy that says, if it feels good, do it. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It is the pursuit of worldly pleasures that are our chief end, which the scriptures tell us will ultimately be our end. It is a self-centered type of life uh, that chases after the things that will satisfy me, myself, and I. Now, here in verse 2, he speaks of our lusts. Now, this speaks more of our desires. It's not just limited, uh, as we often think of it in terms of sexual lust, but it's, it's desires in general. And what is talked about in verse 1 is our state of being. It is who the person has become. But then he speaks of the cravings that we often seek to satisfy. Uh, when he talks about the, the desires... And an example of this where the two come together would be that of an alcoholic. Here's a person who has become that type of person, but it is their desires that are driving them. And as I said, these, uh, these lusts or desires take many forms. It can be sex, drugs, alcohol. It can be power or position. It is money. It is material things. 
And all of these things in and of themselves are designed and given by God, as we've talked about earlier in this series. But it's when these things take over, when we corrupt God's design for us, that these things become destructive. And what James tells us here is as we seek these things, conflict will come, both within us as we battle these desires, and conflicts come when we battle others. Because if my desire is different than your desire, and we are in conflict with one another, then the sparks are going to fly, aren't they? And what he says, when you have a person who is hedonistic, somebody who has this self-centered desire, and it is all about them and their desires, then that's when the sparks really fly. That's when the conflict becomes destructive. The selfishness is the source of disharmony. He says it wages war. He uses the Greek word stratuo here. This is where we get our word strategy. And you've probably seen these individuals. If we were to be honest, we are probably these people as well who strategize how to get our way. It becomes uh, uh, the thing that consumes us, this driving force to get whatever we want. And when someone else gets something that we want, think of a time that maybe somebody got an award that you wanted or received the promotion that you were in line for as well. How did you react to that? Were you happy for the other individual? Or did it destroy you? Did it become this inner turmoil with you where suddenly this person who previously had been your friend suddenly became your enemy? And so what James is talking about here is this type of thing that happens within us. And as you think about your own life, what are you willing to do to get what you want? Who is it that you're willing to run over? Who is it that you're willing to take down in order to take that next step up? We need to be careful when we do these things. Because not only do we run the risk of hurting other people, but we run the risk of destroying ourselves as well. As this all-consuming desire begins to consume even us. Many of you have heard of the the Russian novelist, Leo Tolstoy. And he wrote of a man who was dominated by a driving desire for self-gratification. And the, the thing that was highest on this man's list was to own land, to have more and more land. And one day an offer was made to this person. And he said, whatever land your foot touches from sunrise to sunset will be yours. And so the appointed day came and The man started at a border area, and he began to walk to cover the circumference of this land that would be his. And as he began at a pretty good pace to begin with, the the desire within him drove him, and he started to move faster and faster. He accelerated, and then he was sprinting. And as the sun rose in the sky and as things got hotter and hotter, this man's body, he, he wouldn't stop to rest. He wouldn't stop to take a drink. This desire for land consumed him. And, and fever started to take over his body. He started to overheat. And, he, and rather than stop again, he stripped off his clothing. He abandoned his boots. And as the day was progressing, as the sun was starting to set, he was in a full sprint trying to get back to where he began. And he threw himself over the starting line in exhaustion. And he died. And the only land he received was a six-foot-by-two-foot plot of land that was his grave. How many of us are doing that, friends? How many of us are driving ourselves for something, some other desire that is out there? Broadway actress and Hollywood entertainer Lily Tomlin said this, If I had known earlier in life what it was like to have it all, I would have settled for less. She said in another interview, If you win the rat race, you're still a rat. 
James speaks of the trap here that people fall into and how we're willing to tear others apart as we will fight if we don't get what we want. Now, we may not go as far as he mentions here about murder. And yet, think of the times that you've heard about that. In my former life as a police officer, I dealt with people who had murdered to get what they want. And as James writes this in the first century, remember, he was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And the church was filled with zealots. These were the Jews who had come to Christ, and they were fighting to overthrow Rome, and they were fighting with everybody. Paul was one of them fighting to kill Christians early on. And so James probably had a congregation full of people who thought, you know, murder's an option. And as he's writing to them, he's seeing these type of things coming out in, their, in the way their attitudes and actions may have been in the church. Now, you may be sitting here right now saying, well, Roger, I would never murder. Well, maybe not. But may I remind you that in Matthew 5, 21, Jesus Christ said that when we have the type of anger in our heart toward another, we've committed murder. He says if we call somebody raka, an empty head, a moron or a fool, we've committed murder. Have those words ever slipped out of your mouth in traffic when somebody cuts you off? And so as James is writing here, he's warning us about this. I want to remind you as well that in chapter 3, he told us about the danger and destruction that comes when we misuse our tongue. Chuck Swindoll says, as Christians, we don't carry weapons to church. Well, not literally. That is not necessary since the the muscle behind our teeth is always ready to launch its killing missile. Has your tongue ever slipped out and done that damage and destruction? that we saw in chapter 3. Now, when it comes to our own words, James tell us, tells us here that as Christians, we kind of have this baptized sort of hedonism, right? We speak in ways that we cover up the anger or the, the motives in our heart. And, and what he says is, it comes out even in our prayer life. Look at verse 3. He says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Here again, we see this same word, hedonism. As you think about your prayers, what are they? Are they asking for what you want? Or is it asking for what God wants? George Mueller, the famous missionary prayer warrior, once said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. Rather, it is laying hold of his willingness. In Matthew chapter 7 and Luke chapter 11, uh, Jesus pictures God as a loving father who knows how to give good gifts and he desires to give those good gifts to us as his children. But we need to understand that God is not some cosmic bellhop where we ring the bell and he shows up and he says, what is your wish? That is not what prayer is. You recall that when Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, he said in what we call the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6.10, we're to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In John 14.13-14, he says, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, we take that statement, And we say, all I have to do is tack in Jesus' name onto the prayer, and God becomes like this genie lamp, right? We say, in Jesus' name, and we rub it, and he pops out, and he says, what is your wish? It's my command. But when we pray in Jesus' name, what we are literally saying is we are praying as Jesus would. It is not some magic formula to get what we want. 
It is our way of saying, God, what do you want done and praying according to the way that Jesus would pray? It is saying that the request is consistent with what Jesus himself would ask for. In John 5.14, he tells us, and this is the confidence that we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we ask anything according to his will. When you see that word if there, in Greek grammar, that's called the third class condition. And what a third class condition does is it tells us that in order for B to occur, then A must happen first. In order for B, our request to happen, then A must happen first. So if for God to answer our request, the basic thing is we have to first ask. And we're going, yeah. Well, did you see James 4 too? He says you do not have because you do not ask. There are times we do not receive a request that would be within God's will because we are not spending the time to go to our Heavenly Father and say, Abba, Daddy, let me tell you about my day. Let me tell you about something that I need. And so you have to ask yourself as you're praying, are you first of all actually praying and asking? And then second, the other part of the condition is, are you asking according to his will? Because we can ask all we want, but if it is not according to God's will, he doesn't have to answer it. You see, it's like taking a check that has uh, two signatures required on the front. Have you ever received one of those checks? And it says that you and I can pray and we can sign the check and say, here is the request. How many times have we written a check and said, okay, God, cash it? And what God says is, unless I co-sign the check, unless I endorse it and say it is according to my will, then, friends, that check is void. It's no good. And God will not answer what it is that we're asking for. So it's not as simple as just saying in Jesus' name. But we are to pray as Jesus would. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, the problem comes that some have not really understood how to pray. And so they get frustrated with God. They begin to doubt his goodness. They say, I'm doing everything I was told. I heard some prosperity preacher tell me one time, name it and claim it. And I'm naming it and I'm claiming it and it isn't showing up. So therefore, God is not who God says. And the problem is bad theology. Remember, God is not uh, bound like a genie in a lamp where we pronounce the specific words and out he pops and cashes every check that we write. George Law tells us prayer is a mighty instrument, not forgetting man's will done on earth. I mean, man's will done in heaven, but God's will done on earth. Stanley Jones illustrates it this way. He says, if I throw a, a, a hook, an anchor, a boat hook out to the shore, and I begin to pull on it, he says, do I pull the shore to the boat or does the boat get pulled to the shore? And when we pray, it's like that. We're throwing out this line. And as we pull on it, God says, it's not about pulling me to do what you want. It's about pulling you to where I want you to be, to understand who I am, to understand what it is I want to accomplish. And brothers and sisters in Christ, that is the purpose of prayer. It is not about our pleasures. It is not about our desires, our hedonistic wants. Yes, it's okay to ask for good things. God wants to give you good gifts. Remember, Jesus said he is like a father who knows how to give good gifts. And yet he says we are to pray according to his will, not ours. As James talks about those who are drawn away into the empty and destructive things of the world, he doesn't hold back on how he addresses us next in verses 4 through 5. He says, you adulteresses, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Now, verse 5 there is one of the most difficult verses in the entirety of the Bible to translate. It's not because of textual issues. It's because the way that it's constructed, there, there, you can take different words in that passage different ways. And as you look at your translations of the Bible, uh, there would be five different translations I'm aware of that could be represented out there. And I'll give you the two main uh, categories. Some speak in terms of God yearning over the plight of the human spirit. And others speak in terms of the tender yearning of God's Holy Spirit that is in us. Now, we could spend, as I said, the entirety of our time here unraveling the way the text could present itself, but I just want to jump right to the so what of the passage. Rather than looking at all of this, what is it that James is trying to tell us here? No matter how you take the translation of the verse, what we need to take from this is how God, whose Holy Spirit dwells within us as Christians, is jealous for us. God is jealous for us. Now, you may be sitting here a moment going, whoa, whoa, whoa. God is jealous? God, the perfect God, is this petty, jealous God? What we need to understand here is that as humans, we have a petty jealousy. If I see a friend of mine talking to somebody else, I can become jealous. And that is not what is being discussed here. This is not about uh, insecurity, possessiveness, or the desire to control. The type of jealousy that God describes here is a healthy, protective love for his people. Do you remember he just called us adulteresses? What is an adulterer? An adulterer is where a husband or a wife is unfaithful to their spouse by going after and seeking satisfaction with somebody other than their spouse. And for the first century Jew who had become a believer, they understood very well this picture of God as a holy, just, and jealous God. As you read through the Old Testament prophets in Ezekiel, in Jeremiah, in Hosea, they all speak of God as being this spurned husband where his people, the nation of Israel, were chasing after the pagan gods of the world. And he said that was unfaithfulness. That was adultery. The church is pictured as the bride of Christ. We as God's people belong to him. We are to have an undivided loyalty, a love for God. In the Ten Commandments, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. And so God, when it speaks of his jealousy here, he's speaking of the unfaithfulness of his people who again are not pursuing God, but they're pursuing their pleasures and the things of the world. And so as God speaks of being a jealous God here, he wants us to be faithful to him. We're not to seek to have our needs met somewhere else, like through a friendship with the world. Now, again, we hear this word friendship, and we think of it in terms of casual acquaintance. We call everybody our friends here in Texas, right? We're very friendly folks. I had a friend at seminary. He was from a different uh, state, and he came to me one day, and he said, Roger, do I look okay? And I said, you're fine. Why? He says, well, everywhere I'm going, people are going, hi, howdy, how you doing? You okay? Howdy. And he said, do I look that bad? And I said, it's just what we do here. We just say, you know. And he said, yeah, sometimes I start to talk to them and they walk away like, I didn't really mean for you to tell me how you're doing, you know. (laughs) Well, a friendship with the world here is not a casual acquaintance like we think of it. In the Hellenistic world, friendship involved the sharing of all things. 
There was a unity both of spiritual and physical. It's why the Jews and Gentiles didn't want to sit down and eat a meal together because it was a very intimate interaction. And so as he speaks here of having a friendship with the world, uh, it speaks of, again, this unfaithfulness where we're, we're you know, having this relationship that is a, should only be for God. Last week, Michael talked about how we're not to hide from the world in a holy huddle, but we're to be out in the world as witnesses for God. And the picture for a believer is like a lifeboat that is out on the ocean. And when a boat is out, it's designed to be out on the water. The problem comes when the water gets in the boat, right? And then it sinks. And as he says, we as believers are to be out in the world, but not of the world, is, is mentioned several times in the scriptures. And so as Christians, we are this lifeboat that is out in the world trying to save others from perishing. When he speaks of the world here, again, uh, he uses a very specific word. It's not one that speaks of the, the world as we think of it as a physical place. He uses the Greek word cosmos. And this is a word that speaks of, of a system that is corrupt and broken, of the world system that has been corrupted by our enemy, Satan. He spoke earlier about hedonism, and now he speaks of this corruption where our enemy, Satan, is running this, this system of the world. And he says, we are not to be in that system. We are to be brothers and sisters who are following and pursuing after Christ. When James tells us we're not to be friends with the world, he uses the Greek word philia. It indicates a reciprocal relationship where unfaithful people love the world and the world loves them. But Jesus already told us as Christians that's not how it will work. He told us in John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, the world hates you. So in contrast to the hate of the world, uh, we see God in his love for us, even when we're unfaithful. Look at verse 6. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The grace spoken of here is not a saving grace, but it, it speaks of the grace that we as Christians need to live. When he says a greater grace, I think a, a, a nice picture of this is a painting of Niagara Falls that was in a gallery, and it was titled, More to Follow. And as you looked at the picture of Niagara Falls, it showed the, the massive falls with the, the water cascading over it, flowing down below where that water would go on to, to water the land and meet the needs of everybody below. And Niagara Falls has had billions upon billions of gallons of water pouring over those falls, and there's still more to come. And it is the same picture of God's grace. As he pours it out upon us, there's still more to come. There is a gravity of grace that James says comes to those who are in a lower position. God in heaven gives to us below. But he says if we exalt ourselves, we're going to miss out on what God wants to give to us. As we look at what is happening here, I think of um, a young pastor who was uh, to stand in front of the congregation for his first sermon. And the senior pastor, the veteran pastor was there and he had worked with this young man and the, the man had studied hard, he had prepared well, he thought he had a very clever message. And the moment came as he was to stand for his candidacy and he comes and he ascends the steps to come up to the pulpit. And as he does, there's this clear, proud confidence on this young man. 
He's memorized his message. He just says, this is going to be a home run. It's going to knock everybody you know, out of their seats with how great it is. But as he begins to deliver his message, he had tried to memorize it, and suddenly he forgot part. He stumbled around. It was a mess. And the further and further it went, you could tell this young man was, was feeling like a failure. And when it was over, he hung his head, and, and he, he went down the steps you know, very humbled. And afterwards, the veteran pastor came up to this young man, and he said, if you had gone up the way that you came down, you would have come down the way that you came up. And it's this picture where some of us exalt ourselves, and what God says is, no, you are to humble yourselves. Now, humility is not this false humility. We've all seen people who try to fake humility, and it stinks, doesn't it? True humility is not about thinking of yourselves smaller and smaller than you really are. The true way to be humble is to stand at the true measure of your greatness, but then to compare yourself to something greater than you, and it will show the true smallness of your greatness, right? And the picture here is of Christ. And as we compare ourselves with God in heaven, we realize just how humble we really need to be. And this is what he's calling on us to do. If you've read Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 through 11, Paul tells us there, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the picture of humility. When we see Christ for who he is, God who is highly exalted, willing to humble himself as the creator became a part of the creation, as he left his throne in heaven for the humble stable that he was born in, then as he walked this earth with all the limitations, as he lowered himself, as he emptied himself, as he humbled himself even further. You'll remember the disciples were always fighting over who was the greatest among them. And one memorable occasion was at the Last Supper. As Jesus was preparing to go to the cross, knowing that after they finished the meal, he would be arrested and then ultimately crucified. It says that the disciples were all fighting among themselves as to who was the greatest. And as they reclined at the meal, none of them would take the place of the servant where they would wash one another's feet to to get the road grime and, and the stuff off their feet. And it says Jesus got up from the table. He stripped himself and girded himself with a towel and went person to person and washed their feet. And when he finished doing this, he said in John uh, chapter 13, in verses 13 through 15, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Remember as chapter 4 opened, he said, the problem among you as brothers and sisters, the reason you fight is because you seek to exalt yourself. You seek to have your way over that of another. And he says, if you will humble yourselves, if you will become those who serve one another instead of seeking to be served, you will follow the example that I gave to you. 
As we humble ourselves, it crucifies our pride in this kind of thinking. And I want to remind you that Satan, the thing that caused him to fall was his pride. And James tells us here in verse 7 to resist the devil and he will flee from you. This word resist is a military meaning. It, it means to stand against as in combat. In Ephesians 6, we're, we find a similar passage where we're told how to fight the devil, how to resist. And there it says, stand firm against him after we've taken on the full armor of God. As we fight our foe, we see we don't do it alone. James 4, 8 tells us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The picture of the prodigal son here is is a wonderful illustration of all we see in verse 8. The prodigal son, you'll remember, was one who took his inheritance, left his father, and went out into the world and lived a, a wretched life of sin. And when he had spent everything and when he had hit rock bottom, he realized, I need to return to my father. And he says, I need to repent in order to return. He says, I will go back to my dad. And I will say, Father, I have sinned against you. I'm not fit to be your son. Make me a slave. And so he went back in confession, cleansing himself. He went back humbling himself. He went back saying, I'm turning around and changing the way I'm living. And as he came to his father, what happened? He found that his father, representing God, had been waiting all along. His father had been watching and waiting for his son's return. And as he came back and he began to give his speech saying, I'm not worthy to be your son, the father elevated him up and said, you are my son. He put the ring on his finger, a robe around him, sandals on his feet, and he said, my son has come home. And men and women, those of us who are here today, if we will do those things, if we will turn to God and we will confess our sins and we will say, I don't deserve to be a child of yours, God will say to us, you are my son, you are my daughter. You've confessed your sins, you've come to me, and it is through the blood of my son, Jesus Christ, that I have cleansed you. I have washed away your sins through what he did on the cross as he died to pay the penalty of death for you. As James speaks to us and he tells us to cleanse our hands, it is the outward sign of washing our hands, representing a change in our life, those deeds that we're doing. But it's not merely external things. Remember, the Bible is very clear. By grace, you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one should boast, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us. God says, you don't earn your way to me. It is my grace that saves you. And so as we come to Christ, there is the external change in how we live. But he says it begins with the inward change. He tells us to cleanse our hearts. The word that is used here literally means to make chaste, to make chaste. James used the image of adultery earlier to speak of our our unfaithfulness, and now he says we are to be faithful to God. We are to live for him. And as we stop trying to ride both sides of the fence, he told us here in James 1, 8 earlier in the book, do not be double-minded, a word that means two-souled. And he uses that same word again here. He says you can't do both things. Say you're a believer and try to live for God on a Sunday or some other Bible study night and then go out into the world on Monday and live the way you want. I don't know if you've counted up the commands, but there are ten times that James gives us a command in these four verses. What he says is you can't keep living the way you used to when you come to Christ. There's to be a change in your life. Quit talking about it and start doing it. Start living for the Lord. 
The picture here is of a man who has a magnet in his pocket, and he comes along with a a compass trying to figure out which way he should go. And if you know anything about how a magnet works, it it seeks the magnetic north of the Earth's and, and if you've got a magnet there, it will pull that needle off course. And he says, this is what we are when we're double-minded, two-souled. We say, I'm trying to live the way God wants me to, looking at his thing, but we filled our pockets with the possessions and things of the world, so to speak, and it's drawing us off in another direction. And he says, no wonder you're whirling about in the world and don't know where to go. Let me ask you a question. If you were to go home today and say, you know, I want to sit down, I want to relax, and I want to listen to my favorite songs, and you were to turn on your, your radio, your stereo, and the, your, somebody else in your house, a roommate, your spouse, one of your kids said, well, I want to hear my music, and they turned their stereo on, and they're, you're in the same room with two different things blaring at the top of their uh, volume, how, how well would it, would you be able to listen very well to your music? I mean, over here you've got either jazz or country or rock or rap or something blaring, and over here is the symphony orchestra going, and and you're sitting here trying to listen to both stereos at once, and what you end up with is a headache, right? And ultimately what you have to do is turn one of them off so that you can hear the other. And he says as we go through the world, the world is blaring its message to us. And he says, and at the same time, the still, small voice of God, the Holy Spirit who is resident within us, and the word of God and the things that God wants us to hear, he's trying to give us his message as well. And he says, we as believers have to turn one or the other off. And unfortunately, what we do too often is we turn off God's voice. And we listen to what the world is telling us to do. And James tells us to stop, to turn off the world and its message. And to listen to God in his word. To live as he calls us to do. Now, when we live like this, James 4, 9, that is according to the world's way. He says, if we are living the world's way, he says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, as Christians, we tend to live this verse out pretty well, don't we? We walk around looking like the cover child for the book of Lamentations. We don't really have joy in our life, oftentimes. God is not against joy. God wants us to have joy. He tells us in Proverbs 17:22 that laughter is good medicine. He wants us to have joy, but what James is speaking about here in this context is not about the cheerful heart that does us good, but he says when we recognize the wretchedness of our position, as we've been living with our foot on the world side instead of on God's side, he says we recognize we need to make a change. And he uses the language that goes with a funeral. This is mourning. He says we have to realize how wretched we are. Paul himself said, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of this death? And he says when we recognize that we've been living in the wrong world, we are to die to that old self. And we are to live as God calls us to do. Rather, the the word for laughter that he uses here is a very unique word. It's only used here in the entire New Testament. It was described, it was used to describe the scornful, flippant laughter of those who refuse to take sin seriously. And what he says is we are not to live that way, this devil-may-care type of attitude, that eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That hedonistic worldview what he says is we are to live with an understanding 
of how our sin grieves and hurts God who loved us so much. He ends in verse 10 by saying, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. To humble ourselves before the Lord means we recognize we have nothing to offer to God. And we come to him as needing God's great grace and mercy. The passage that describes this that I'll close with is in Luke chapter 18. In Luke 18 in verses 10 through 14, Jesus was telling a parable. In the parable that he spoke, he said, Two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the religious leader. And another was a tax collector, you'll recall, who was seen as the worst sinner of the day. And so he says, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. Ever prayed a prayer like that? But the tax collector, standing at some distance away, was not even willing to lift up his eyes to heaven. But he was beating his breast and he was saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus concludes in verse 14, I tell you that this man, the the tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. As we prepare to come to the communion table now, the communion table reminds us of how we are justified. We are not justified through our works. We're not justified through the way that we've lived our life. We're justified through the sacrifice where God, his only son, went to the cross and he gave his life. Where Jesus died in my place and your place to be the one to pay the penalty of death for our sins. And as we come to the communion table now, what we are called to do is to humble ourselves, to recognize and to say to God this morning, I have nothing to offer you, God. I'm a sinner. All my righteous works, all the things that I thought would get me to you, all the ways I thought I could earn my way to heaven, I realize today, God, they are worthless. Paul said in Philippians that he counted them as rubbish, as filthy rags. They would do nothing to get him to God. But as we come to this table, we will hold in a moment a piece of bread representing the body of Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who died in your place and mine to pay that penalty. We will hold a cup representing his blood, blood that was shed to cleanse us, to wash away our sins. If you're here today and you've never received God's great gift of new life, turning from your sin into Jesus to be your Savior, I invite you today to take those elements and to say in the privacy of your mind and in your heart, God, today I'm turning from my sin into you. I'm accepting your death in my place. Thank you, God, for making me a part of your family. And for the rest of us who have received God's great gift in the past, use this time as well to confess your sins, to say, God, this has been a tough week. I've made some mistakes. Maybe it's been a tough month or more. And you're saying, God, I've been walking away from you, but today I want to come home. You're not being saved again, but you're receiving that greater grace. God will give you grace upon grace. And what you will receive today is the opportunity to start fresh and to walk out of here, not carrying guilt and the grime of the world. Just leave it in the pew when you leave. God will wipe it away. He'll wash it away. So take these elements, hold them, and in a moment we'll take them together. 
but use this time to talk to God in prayer and let him know that you're thankful for his great gift.
We're told in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We hold in our hands the representation of God's great love, the Son he gave, and the Son who loved us enough to go to the cross and give his life to save us, the body of Christ he did in remembrance of him. James told us to cleanse, to cleanse our hands, to cleanse our lives, O sinners. Sinners. I'm a sinner, you are. We've made mistakes, we're far from God. There's nothing that we can do to come to God on our own. But because of the blood of Jesus Christ, it washes away our sins. It makes us righteous in the eyes of God. It makes us acceptable not just as people who walk through the gate of heaven and are told to to go sit in a corner and be quiet, that we're lucky we're here. But instead, he says, you're my son. You're my daughter. You're fully forgiven. You're accepted and made a part of my family through what my son Jesus did for you. The blood of Jesus that cleanses us. Drink Drink it in remembrance of him. Will you join me, please, as we close in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your great love for us. Love that was demonstrated by what your son did as he went to the cross and died for us. Jesus, we thank you for your love, your willingness to lay down your life to save me and the others who are here. Father, would we be those who are your people, who love you enough to respond to what you call us to do. To be those who are willing to walk out of the doors of this church and into the world and to live lives that are different from the world around us. Would you help us, Lord, to be those who do the way that we love and live, that it would draw other people to you, to see the great gift that you've given to them so that they too might have the great gift of new life through your son. Thank you, God, for loving us. Thank you, God, now for the privilege we have of being your people to go and take a part in your work. May we be faithful to do that. Send us out now. In your name we pray. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.